there's a recent phenomenon in the news right now about fake news. Are you guys following this? It, and it's cutting both ways. The accusations are both on the, the left and the right, um, that there's uh, just things that are in the news media that are plain false and intentionally so. Um, and of course, I shouldn't be surprised by this, but the Babylon Bee hit a home run uh, in tackling this phenomenon. You all know what the Babylon Bee is by now because I bring it up in every other sermon. It's the Christian fake news. <laughs> so of course the fake news has to talk about the fake news. It's kind of like the onion uh, for, for Christianity. Uh, so it's parody. And uh, their article is, Culture in which all truth is relative, suddenly concerned about fake news. <laughs> Sometimes the headlines are enough, right? Uh, follow it on Facebook, and it's a daily dose with just the headlines. But let me read the, the, a little bit of the article for you. A sources from within the United States confirmed Tuesday that American society, while typically rejecting concepts like absolute truth and objective moral standards, is suddenly showing grave concern for the rise of fabricated news stories after a reported uptick in fake news during the recent election season. One Oregon man who rejects the idea that humanity can even be sure the universe exists in a meaningful sense was nonetheless disturbed by the idea that websites could publish completely false information for anyone in the world to read. It's just absolutely wrong, in my opinion, said the man who doesn't believe in absolute ideals of right and wrong at all. What if someone reads the information and gets, like, deceived? That just seems totally wicked. It just doesn't seem right that they can publish stuff that's just blatantly not true, added the man, who also noted his firm uh, belief that everyone has the right to define their own version of truth. Other Americans agreed, stating that the idea that shady news sites could get away with reporting completely inaccurate information was disturbing and evil, before stressing their belief that no one individual's notions about morality or absolute or, bind, or, absolute or binding in any meaningful sense. Uh, well, <laughs> I hope you thought that was funny. I did. Um, the, uh, it's, it's not a new phenomenon. You know, what they're, what they're getting at here and with some humor, uh, the, the, there's sort of a 20th century proverb that surfaced at least as early as the 1950s uh, where people would say, uh, and still to this day, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Have you heard that before? Charles Schultz uh, tackled this in a, a parody of his own with the Peanuts comic strip where uh, Linus and uh, Charlie Brown are arguing about the truth between uh, Santa Claus and the Great Pumpkin. And Linus at the end says, well, the way I see it, it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere, uh, right? Because those are their two deities. Or nowadays you might see on the back of a car uh, a bumper sticker that says coexist, you know, made up of the symbols of, of different religions. It's the same sort of idea. And when I was growing up uh, in California, by the way, if there's a trend in California, usually it makes its way to the rest of the country years later. But when I was growing up in the 1980s, people were saying all paths lead to the same God. Uh, it was sort of our PC, uh, politically correct kind of creed that, that you can hear even on the streets of, uh, of Birmingham now. All paths lead to the same God. And even in recent research uh, that came about in the last 10 to 15 years, um, some, uh, some uh, uh, ethnographers did statistical research with American teenagers with surveys and interviews with thousands of teenagers in the United States 
and they realized that all most teenagers, which really means most Americans, because it's sort of a litmus test of, of American religion, have a operating religion, no matter if they're Muslim, Christian, Jewish, atheist, Buddhist, whatever, spiritual, not religious, new age, most people in the United States have what they've deemed the de facto religion of moralistic therapeutic deism, or MTD. If you come to the inquirer's class later tonight, Brandon will give a more extensive exposition of what this is all about. But the researchers, nobody's going around saying, I'm a member of MTD. It's just sort of a description of what's happening out there in the culture. And the researchers describe this de facto religion as, uh, here's the five-point creed. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. I mean, you've probably heard that before, right? If me reading this and you're nodding your head like, yes, that's the truth, there's something wrong here. Um, that is a, sort of a, a milk toast religion that has no teeth at all and, and very little conviction is based on um, just sort of a mishmash of the noise that's out there in the world. That's not Christianity. Although you'll talk to a lot of Christians and they'll describe their faith with similar terms. Notice that I made no mention of Jesus Christ in that creed. This is a di distant deity who, as they describe, is a divine butler who basically tends to your needs when you call upon him, but otherwise basically uh, is not involved in your life. And at the end of the day, he just wants you to be happy, coexist, kumbaya. You know, can't we all sort of get along when it comes to religion? All paths lead to the same God. It doesn't matter what you believe, so long as you're sincere. That's the sort of, uh, that's, that's moralistic therapeutic deism. But one cannot believe in things like that and be a Christian. Um, you, you can't believe that all paths lead to the same God. It doesn't matter what you believe, so long as you're sincere. And, you know, coexistence is fine in terms of let's, you know, in terms of civil society, not kill each other. But, but don't think that we can worship in sort of interfaith way and worship any true God. It's just not, it, it, there's no conviction. There's a lack of integrity when it comes to something like that. Christianity is an exclusive historic truth claim about something that happened in history. And that might sound kind of uh, reductive or, or mean-spirited, but that historic truth claim is one of great comfort. It's a truth claim of greatest comfort. It's not a mean thing, it's a pastoral thing. It's the truth. And unfortunately, so many Christians are capitulating and becoming de facto universalists or relativists uh, along the lines of those different creeds that I just read to you. Because exclusivity is on PC. It's not politically correct. So relativizing is done for the sake of sort of being nice and getting along and not offending other people. I once preached several years ago at another church a sermon on the, the, on the passage where Jesus Christ talks about being the way, the truth, and the life. And when it comes to that, you know, I can't have any bounds about it. He said, the way, the truth, and the life. Exclusive. Claim. 
only one, solo, Jesus Christ. So I preached on this in a, in a Christian church and got several complaints, basically saying that I agreed with that, and you should too. I stand here convicted of this truth, and why did you come to a Christian church if you were expecting to hear something else? But believe it or not, I got several complaints that that was uh, not a nice thing to say, not only from several adults, adults but from one child uh, who told me, you offended my gods. And I said, who are your gods? And he said, uh, I believe in the Greek gods, <laughs> the pantheon, because he was studying it in school, right? But the kid was truly upset that I disrupted or, or, or spoke about something else and said that that's not true. So I had a, had a very gentle pastoral conversation with this 12-year-old about, well, you know, I mean, um, I don't agree with you, and I hope that you'll come around. Uh, but it's nice that you're studying these things in school. Um, but, you know, shocked. As I was, you know, sort of standing at the door when you shake people's hands, you know, good morning, good morning, good morning. And somebody said, I believe Muslims go to heaven too. And I said, well, wait a minute. That's not, I didn't even say anything about Muslims. You know, I was just talking about Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. By the way, I hate it when people do that sort of like, of course I can't have a conversation with you. You're <laughs> bolting by me and I'm shaking hands to drop a bomb like that. So we had to, I had to call her later that week and say, let's talk about this. I believe that this is a message of great comfort. Uh, but, you know, becoming a relativist lacks integrity. And not only that, it lacks sincerity. You know, like I said, what did you expect if you come to a Christian church? What do you expect if you go to a, a Jewish synagogue? What do you expect if you go to a Muslim mosque? What do you expect if you go to the humanist society? They're going to talk about why their truth is the exclusive truth, or one would hope so. And so here, this is the platform, and not only do we believe it's one truth among many, but it actually is the truth. There is a recent news uh, about the inauguration prayer service, and I say this uh, not to get political at all, but this is in the news that uh, the, the, the prayer service for the inauguration is going to be at the National Cathedral Church in Washington, D.C., another Episcopal church, and Trump asked for no sermon. What? Exactly. A prayer service at a church. Well, first of all, it's an interfaith service at a Christian church. And they said, yes, we won't preach a sermon. Um, I, I couldn't believe that. If, you know, if they asked to do that here at the Advent, I hope we would say, well, you can take your prayer service somewhere else uh, because uh, we're going to preach a service. And we're going to preach at that service. Um, but this is evidence that Christian churches are lacking such integrity, first of all, to even hold an interfaith service within your sanctuary, and second of all, to agree not to preach a sermon within the context of a church service. By God. That's what you came here, is to hear the good news. Go somewhere else if you want to pray an interfaith prayer, which I think is a bunch of hogwash. It's just a bunch of people praying in parallel to different gods. It's not the same thing. One of the best pieces of good news from Isaiah's prophecy is that Yahweh is not only the God of Israel, but he's also the God of the nations. That Yahweh is not only the God of Israel, but he's the God of the nations. Whereas in Isaiah 40, uh, the passage begins, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, meaning Israel where they had no comfort, whereas in chapter 40 he says, comfort, comfort my people, meaning Israel. Chapter 49 that we just read today begins like this. Listen to me, O coastlands, 
And give attention, you peoples, from afar. Uh, Often, uh, Isaiah talks about the coastlands, or in other translations, it might be the islands, or the nations on on the shore. Basically, this means all nations that are far flung, not just Israel, but all corners of the world. Listen to me. Not only does he tell the coastlands to listen, but that salvation is found in the servant of the Lord. The servant that he talks about in the latter half of Isaiah is the true Israel. And we would say that's Jesus Christ. Whereas Israel failed to be Israel, Jesus Christ is the true Israel, the servant of the Lord. Not only does does Yahweh want the coastlands to listen, but to hear that salvation is found in that servant. And Isaiah was talking about Jesus. Later in the passage, he says, uh, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, meaning Israel, and to bring back uh, the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's too light of a thing for you to preserve, not, uh, to, ju- to preserve just Israel. But I'm going to make you a light for all the nations, meaning everyone. I'm the God, the creator of the universe. Of course, I'm the God of everyone and not just Israel. And this would have been completely countercultural at the time, not only uh, for Israel and Judah, but for all the nations, all the bordering nations. Because the ancient uh, Near Eastern religions were basically localized, different localized versions of polytheism. Uh, you know, they, they're different local gods or systems of gods. The Greek gods, the pantheons that this little kid believed in, right? Things like that. That's what a lot of the religions looked like. And here he's making an exclusive claim that those gods are phony. Listen to me. I'm your god too. I'm your salvation. Uh, in the Old Testament, we learned that... Uh, Yahweh is not only going to choose Israel, but he is the one true and only God of the world. And all other so-called gods are impotent, powerless, have no strength. This is something that the prophet Elijah demonstrated uh, when the prophets of Baal were no match for the prophet of Yahweh. Do you remember that battle that he had between them? And they couldn't, they couldn't bring about the miracles because their gods are fake. His God was true. If they're impotent, they can offer no comfort. If they're fake, they can offer no comfort. Earlier this week, uh, a friend of mine uh, who's the same age as me in her late 30s died. Um, She had cancer. And for two years, we've known that uh, she had cancer, and we thought that it was in remission. She had surgery uh, to heal it, and the, the cancer, there was no sign of it for months. And she has this blog that she started called Life Upstage, Adventures of a Young Mom with Metastatic Cancer. She has a three-year-old daughter and leaves a husband behind. Uh, and back in late December, uh, less than a month ago, a new blog post called Prognosis came up, and I saw this in my Facebook feed. And she wrote, Well, a lot has changed since I last wrote. I've been in the hospital the better part of a month. I'm so groggy on pain meds that I can't type all the details. 
But the gist, the bitter pill I'm trying to swallow is that I'm dying imminently. Doctors tell me I have weeks, maybe a few months, left to live. A surgery temporarily saved my life, but now we're out of options. I'm being kept alive by IV nutrition and sips of liquids. I've only seen Eleanor, that's her daughter, a handful of days. I will soon start some home hospice care. There is always hope. I get excited when I think about heaven. Although I don't know how to picture it, I know that it is better than anything we can imagine. And I can imagine some pretty great things. It will be wonderful to see loved ones who have already gone before and be continually present in the capital L light, where there is no pain or fear. I almost feel guilty the way one does when packing for a trip that others aren't going on. I will try to write as often as I can going forward, but staying awake, let alone typing, is a challenge. And then she quotes from Psalm 27. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Well, that was the last blog post she actually wrote. Because she got so weak in the following three weeks, her husband and some friends had to write blog posts for her. And her husband wrote a couple of really touching ones. And one uh, that was uh, just earlier this month, he ended by saying this, Last night we discussed the anger, sorrow, and sadness expressed by those who love her. Those feelings are real, she said, but during her goodbyes, there is this constant piece of advice Amanda gives to family and friends as they grieve. Open your heart to God. And then they quote, uh, oh, sorry, that one didn't have a quote, the next one did. But anyway, open your heart to God. Here's a woman dying and names it three weeks before she's going to die and can do nothing but talk about the salvation and the light and the hope that she has in the God of Israel, in Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. You know, the comfort uh, is found there. And no other belief system could have provided her, I'm convinced, with equivalent comfort to die as well as she did. The season that we're in right now liturgically is called Epiphany, uh, which sort of gives you the idea of light. You know, like Epiphany, being like the light bulb when people have ideas. Uh, the, the light of the world, who is Jesus Christ. The light to the nations that Isaiah talks about in this passage. After Jesus Christ was born, just 40 days later, he was taken to the temple. And this man named Simeon took the Christ child in his hands, the Word of God incarnate in his hands. And he sung a song, and part of what he said uh, is... Uh, about this child, a light to enlighten the nations and the glory of your people Israel. And he's referring to this very passage from Isaiah. This is the God not only of Israel, but a light to the nations, to all of us. That's what the season of Epiphany is about. Getting that message to all four corners of the universe. The message of hope, the message of salvation to everyone. Exclusive truth claim. In John's Gospel, Jesus Christ says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
When you have that light, you can die as well as Amanda did, whether you're 37 or 87. He also says in John's Gospel, as I said before, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, except through him, the light to the nations. Yahweh's salvation for not only Israel, but for everyone. Look, I don't know what you believe, and maybe I'll get some complaint emails later this week. That's fine. I'd love to have that conversation. Anybody who, wants to talk, who has another belief system, coffee is on me. You know, we'll talk about it. I'd love to talk about nothing else in the world. You know, chances are that uh, your false gods or idols, whether you're a Christian or not, are, are something a little more nuanced than this. They probably have something to do with family or narcotics or finances your career, your image, whether it's the clothes you wear, how you groom, plastic surgery, the car that you drive, or something else that you consume. Chances are that those are the false gods that actually occupy you more than the Babylonian gods or the Greek pantheon or something else that uh, you know we put on a coexist bumper sticker. The reality is that our gods are more acute than that. The God of Israel is is not indifferent. He's jealous for you. He's a jealous God, which means he hates to see you have other idols in your life. He wants to push them out. And he has made himself known as the one and only true God through his revelation to Israel and through Jesus Christ. And he is the God not only for Israel, he is the God for you. The coastlands. We are the people of the coastlands. Listen and see the light of salvation. Give heed to this message. See the light and accept him as your God with a yes and amen. Amen.